This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with us and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I've got Lindsay Persico on the line and she has recently been on the TV show Alone the Beast and she also has a website hunt fiber that has all kinds of great content so if you haven't seen it definitely check it out and Lindsay, i'm just gonna quit introducing you and let you introduce yourself because obviously you could do it better than me <laughs> thank you uh, so i live in montana i was born and raised in idaho and i am an avid lover of the outdoors and hunting i started hunting as a young girl when my dad would take me out to look for whitetails. We lived up on a high mountain prairie area where there were a lot of canyons that went down and it was great whitetail hunting. We'd do a lot of sitting and glassing and spotting whitetails in their beds and that was a lot of fun. I got addicted to that at a quite a young age and it's stuck with me as I've grown. I now live here in Montana with my husband and I have three kiddos, uh, two daughters and a son. And we've been blessed to be able to introduce them to hunting, and they are very interested in it, very excited about it. My 12-year-old daughter has taken multiple deer and an elk last year, and then my um, younger daughter has taken her first deer last year, and then my son is five, and he can't wait till it's his turn. <laughs> but we definitely try to make hunting in the outdoors just a big part of our life and take advantage of where we live and the opportunities we have around us. And it's kind of the passion for us. No, that's awesome. I, I We've followed each other on social media for a while now, and I always see posts of you guys doing things as a family outdoors, and I think that's 
a great way to bring your kids up. I'm kind of curious. Um, so, like, I know your husband Tristan got that moose, and it was a big booner, and I know your whole family put effort into that. Can you talk about that a little bit and how you guys incorporated the entire family into that? Sure. That was a really cool story, something that was totally unexpected. So the tag that he drew was very difficult to draw. It was like a 1% chance that he was going to draw this tag. But he puts in for those every year. And he drew the moose tag, which was on all by itself exciting. He spent a lot of time scouting the area where he knew he wanted to hunt. And he had seen one pretty decent bull there, nothing like Boone and Crockett, but just a nice, a nice bull that he would have been really happy to take. And when season came around, me and him and our older daughter, Bridger, went up and camped out for a long weekend to hunt. And he went up in that area where he had seen the big bull before that he was hoping to kind of connect with and it just hadn't come out. We went out for a morning hunt, an evening hunt, another morning hunt. Couldn't see him. Bridger and I went and glassed some other areas looking for something else. And we decided to take a drive and go way around to this other spot that he hadn't really done any scouting in. He'd driven up to that area and had seen a cow and a calf up there, but it was like kind of a backup spot if, if the other spot didn't work out. So we got up in there and it was the coolest area I think I've probably ever been in. It was an old growth forest, really dense, really thick, up high. It was cold. The sun didn't really get through the timber because it was so thick. So down on the ground, it was all mossy. It was just a dense, beautiful area, but up high. It was a weird feeling. It was a neat feeling there. It felt like you should see little elves running around or something. <laughs> it was cool. So we pulled off there and Bridger and I hung out closer to the vehicle. We just kind of wandered around. We were exploring and looking around. It was really getting dusky. It was it was close to the end of shooting hours. And he took off down a deer trail and decided to see, you know, where it went, to see if he could find any sign even. You could tell it was kind of strangely there was some I don't know if there was a lot of springs up in there or something, but there was there was some wet areas. So he took off and headed down in there and he wasn't gone for very long at all. And Bridger and I were looking at this giant scrape on this tree. We couldn't believe how huge it was. It was up high and it was like half the tree was just gone. And we thought, how, what could make this scrape? This is huge. And we hear these shots come from the woods and it was my husband's uh, ex-military and he shoots a lot and he's very good at shooting he's very proficient with his firearms and i know when he's shooting at something and it's gonna go down <laughs> <laughs> and i could tell by the way he was shooting i was like something something's dying over there this is and it's got to be pretty big because he went in there he wasn't in there for very long and he was shooting and i'm like it's got to be a decent bull back there because there's nothing else that he would be shooting at right now nothing else was open this was the only tag i knew he had to have stumbled upon a big moose back there, but I had no idea how big it actually was. So we had radios. He stopped shooting. Bridger and I are sitting there just looking at each other like, oh my gosh, what's what's happening? And he radios up. He's like, you guys got to bring the pack frames. He's like, I got a bull down and he's huge. And I got back in there and I just stood in awe over that thing. He was so beautiful, so beautiful and so huge. <laughs> His antlers were gigantic. Like, I didn't know 
stuff like that was in Montana. It was just the most <laughs> beautiful thing. But it was right before dark. Um, we had probably half an hour of daylight left. And he had gotten back in there probably a little over a half a mile before he found this moose. And it was all of those crisscrossed, blown down lodgepole timber patch. So it was like a maze to try to get up and over all these logs and around all these logs. It was, it was kind of tough to walk through there. Um, so I started butchering the moose and Bridger held the light for me because it got dark right as we started. And Tristan just started taking trips back and forth from the truck to the moose with the pack frame and I would butcher, get him a load and he'd come back and I'd load him up and Bridger would keep the light for us and shine everything. She packed out a little bit of it herself, packed out some of the gear, but she got to see everything. She got to see the whole process. She got to be a part of it all. And it was one of the coolest things to have her there, her face watching everything and just getting to see her reaction. And that was priceless. That was one of the best parts of the whole thing. How old was she at the time? I mean, she was probably pretty she little. She was, right? she was eight she was eight or nine i think she was maybe nine that's pretty cool yeah she's pretty cool little <laughs> yeah but that's it was amazing i mean i that's like right now i mean my oldest daughter i've got two daughters and a son as well and my oldest daughter's four are going to be five this summer and it's one of those things that she always acts like she wants to go out but you know we've got baby chicks and stuff and she won't even hold them it's the middle child the oh, wild yeah. one that doesn't care about anything it'll do anything with dad so we'll see it'll be interesting she keeps talking like she wants to go hunting with me but i hope she does you'll just yeah work her into it slow she'll probably come around <laughs> yeah i'm hoping so if she's got an interest in it but That's so cool. um i want to ask you you do i mean it's inspirational to me even and i i slack a lot on my fitness and then i'll just get after it seems like about a couple of months before but you're one who keeps after it all the time relentlessly always doing something and i know that ties in to hunting as well obviously um and you you're continually working out you want to talk about how that kind of ties into hunting for you sure well for me one of the reasons why i try to not slack off on my <laughs> workouts <laughs> is because I absolutely hate having to come back from from that like it's so much easier to keep yourself in shape and just to keep your schedule and to keep on top of it it's actually the less lazy way because it's easier <laughs> but when you slack off and you have to come back it's so much harder and I know that because I used to do it all the time and I just hated that how much work it was to come back and to know how much I lost and and I often thought if I hadn't stopped, I wonder how much further I'd be right now if I had kept on working at it and I hadn't quit in the off season. So that's part of it. The other thing is I have an autoimmune disease called Hashimoto thyroiditis. And one of the things I've really found that helps me is exercise. I just feel a lot better when I'm keeping active and I'm staying fit. So those two things on top of the fact that hunting in the west is extremely physical it's you got to carry big packs you're hiking mountains you're carrying out really large animals there's no part about it that isn't really physical and i have a husband who's extremely fit and i we like to go a long ways i don't ever want to slow him down when i'm out there by myself i know i might have to bring an animal out by myself there's just 
there's no way I could possibly be as fit as I want to be for everything that I want to do. So I figure I better do the best I can to be as fit as possible. <laughs> yeah. So how many miles do you typically put on? Do you ever log that when you do your rucks? Uh, for rucking just my day, day-to-day workouts, I usually do about three miles. Um, I have an area where I'm at where I can go up half the way is uphill and then turn around and come back down downhill. And I've found that doing uphill and downhill is really important because you have to do that with a heavy pack going downhill is just as much work, right. different kind of work, but it's just as much of a strain on your body as going uphill is. It's just in a different way. So it's important to train all of that. But yeah, I usually do about three miles for my, my weekly rucks. Nice. Nice. Now, when you first started hunting, were you a uh, archery hunter right off the, out the gate, or was it uh, rifle hunting for years, and then you kind of just picked up the bow later on? So for I don't know I don't know how it is for for a lot of people. I've noticed that back out east, it seems like there's a lot more archery hunters, and it makes sense because rifle season is just so crowded. Um, but for me, when I started hunting, no, I I was hunting with rifle. I wasn't hunting with a bow. I took the archery course and I had a bow and I did go out, but for me, it was mostly just to extend my season. So I look at archery hunting as here. I don't have to pick one or the other. I can do both and archery season just comes along earlier in the year. So if I have my bow and my archery stamp and I want to go out during archery season, it just extends the period of time I have to get a big game animal. But for me, Archery hunting is not nearly as successful and it's a lot more time consuming. And I've got three kiddos that we feed on wild game. So it's it's very important that we fill our tags every year because we need that food. And then I've got three kiddos, so they keep me really busy and I don't have as much time as I want to, to get out into the woods. So I use that archery as an extension of my season, but it's not my my passion. I really love rifle hunting. Yeah. So let me ask you this then, because obviously time constraints and stuff like that. How do you and Tristan choose who's going to get to go hunting or who is it? Just <laughs> wait and see. I mean, is there ever, does it ever come to any arguments over who gets to go? Well, it's funny. We each have our own favorite, like we each have our own passion. So for my husband, his passion is elk hunting. It always has been. He loves elk hunting and I do too. So for that type of situation, we usually try to have a grandma come around during elk season. She's here on the weekends, at least a couple weekends so that I can get out. He's going to be out every weekend on elk season. (laughs) (laughs) There's no way around it. If I want to go out, I pretty much have to have a babysitter. Um, But the rest of the seasons, like the deer hunting, which I love, I grew up deer hunting and I love deer hunting and he does, he'll do it, but it's not his passion. So if I want to go out, he's totally fine just letting me go. Um, And then the other things that I spend a lot of time on are predators. And he has really no interest in predator hunting at all. So in the wintertime, I get to go out kind of whenever I want. He doesn't care. If I want to go predator hunting, he's usually down with that and I can go. So that works out all right. Did you fill your wolf tag this year? No, this year I have not filled a wolf tag yet. Um... I've been learning a lot about wolf hunting. I've been doing this for a few years and every year I learn more about it. But this season turned, this season went a little bit south on me. I, I was gone. Like you said, at the beginning of the show, I was gone for quite a while there filming for that show. I got back in November. I only had a couple hunts left for elk 
and deer. And I tried to get out and spend as much time as I could to look for elk and deer. I ended up getting two whitetails, but no elk this year. And then the craziness of the holiday season hit. And then from there, everything just went south. My family went through some serious, like sick times, not your average flu and flu season. It was nasty. Our, there was a lot of stuff going on health-wise. And then we had some tragic tragedy with losing family. Um, we lost a few people that were close to us in a pretty short period of time. So our my the rest of my predator season kind of went out the window. <laughs> it was a weird year. Yeah. And now we're now we're here with this whole virus thing. So yeah, it just doesn't seem to want to get back to, to normal. That. And uh, there hasn't been a normal lately. Yeah, sorry to hear that about your family. Um, about losing family members, that's always sad. Um, it's one of them things, but, um, as far as the sickness that we experienced the same thing, I think we, I even messaged you something about, yeah, same thing. It was weird. Our kids got sick and then they got better and they were sick again right afterwards. Yeah. There was no break. And with three of them, they kind of, it staggered. And so there was really nobody healthy, no, no time when everybody was healthy, except for right now, they're all healthy right now. And it feels like a miracle. (laughs) I'm almost hoping that that one of those illnesses that we've had actually was the coronavirus if that's you know that went through my mind too <laughs> oh, my gosh because it was some it... of them were pretty bad so it wouldn't surprise me yeah but... I'm, I'm hoping so because if if that wasn't i'm guessing we don't want to experience it that's all I right so, yeah but so i hear you you were on the show um alone and we could talk about that so how how did you even come to the realization that you wanted to be on the show or was it kind of just people pushing you in that direction? I've had some friends over the years that kind of told me, they're like, Hey, you should, you should go on that show. I'll make a demo tape for you. You want to go on that show? And I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I don't think I'd be that good. What was your thing that drove you to even be on that? I had no desire to be on any show like that. It's never crossed my mind to apply to a show like that. And I was approached by them nice. and I looked at the situation. I looked at, I looked at what they were presenting to me and I thought, this is crazy. I'm not, I'm not a survivalist person. I'm a hunter and I hunt in the West. And so in order to be safe out there, you have to be prepared. You have to know a lot of things you have to, you know, you might end up spending some nights out in the wilderness injured. You don't know what could happen. So you prepare for everything, but that's the extent of it for me. I'm not one of these bushcrafter people, you know, it's just not my niche, but I looked at it as an opportunity to do something that I might regret if I don't do it mm-hmm. there. I've never been to that area in the Arctic up there. I've never seen beautiful Northern lights. I've never experienced anything like that. And I thought, you know, it's a rare opportunity. When is this opportunity going to come along again? I better freaking do this. (laughs) So I did. On top of the fact that you are the epitome of modern day badassery, we've got to get that out of the way. And I think there may be another podcast that even labeled you as that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that that was what it was going to be, but yeah. Yeah. So, um, So you go, you're on the show, zero tools whatsoever, just the clothes on your back. Um, You've got an animal, they drop an animal. I don't know, if you haven't seen the show, I don't want to spoil it for you, but I'm going to anyway. So stop this podcast if you're listening right now. 
go watch the episode and then come back and finish. Um, <laughs> you guys go and right away you dive in. I mean, the other two uh, cast members were kind of just there looking for a rock helping and you're already elbow deep in this animal. Um, obviously because you've done it multiple times before, right? But I mean, wh- like what kind of mental preparation did you go through beforehand or anything like that or the fact that I mean, did you ever forage before other than for like rose hips or huckleberries or anything like that? Was that even even in your wheelhouse? So growing up, I had done some stuff like that. We lived in a really tiny town. And one of the things you do when you're kind of out there by the, in the country is you go at different times of the year and you forage for stuff because it's there and it's good. It's a resource. And so I have. I have done that. Um, we did a lot of mushroom, like the morel mushroom hunting um, different kinds of berries, things like that. But, but like I said, I'm not a bushcrafter. I'm not a, you know, that's not what I do. I hunt. <laughs> <laughs> so going into the show, I knew what I was going to need to be practicing or working on or or growing my knowledge in before I went up there. So I did a lot of study on what could be available to me in that climate, what might be around. And that was it was helpful, but at the same time, once I got up there, it was so late in the season that there wasn't really much left. Most of the greenery was, you know, dead or dying. And by day seven, everything was covered in snow. So I, I studied a lot of that stuff and I worked on it, but it, it, it didn't end up paying off as much as I was hoping it would because there wasn't that much available. So then, I mean, obviously as a hunter, a lot of hunters, they don't have the the wilderness skills that they would need to survive. I mean, so what kind of like wild crafting stuff did you study up on? I know I saw something and I don't know if it was after you were already on the show, you posted it or maybe it was before and I kind of trying to remember, but it was something about learning how to use a bow drill and and, uh, start a fire. I mean, was that something you've ever done before or was that something you practiced before you knew you were going to be on it? So I'm one of those people, like I said, I, I work out a lot, I exercise a lot so I can carry a lot of weight. And that translates into what I bring with me when I go out. I take everything under the moon with me into the woods. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got multiple knives. I've got multiple ways of starting a fire. I've got saws. I have first aid equipment. I have everything because I don't want to get out there and have to make my stuff out of tree roots. And that's not what I want to do when I'm out there. If I get stuck out there, I want to have what I need in my backpack. So for me, there was a lot of stuff that I had never dabbled in. I had never dabbled in napping rock to make a blade. I'd not done that. So I messed around with that before I went up there. Um, and I learned quite a lot. It was very interesting. It's fun to, it's fun to look into that stuff. It is interesting, but I have so many hobbies Yes. that that kind of thing <laughs> isn't a part of my daily life, you know? <laughs> so I dabbled in that. And when it came to the bow drill, I went out in my yard, I pulled a couple branches off of different trees, I kind of looked at what what you need for a successful bull drill kit, what the point is, you know, what it, what's required for building an ember, those types of things. I went out in my yard, I pulled out some some stuff and I built a bow drill and I built a fire and I thought, okay, well, it can do this. <laughs> something I can do. But it's it wasn't something that I naturally just had all those skills. They wanted people who had a specific skill set because they set you out with a group of three people and you each had your own your own specialty. My specialty was butchering and processing of meat. 
that was what I came into it with as a specialty. The other guys had different, different ones. So I knew that I may need those skills if something happened to one of my teammates, or in my case, both of my teammates. Yes. But I was hoping that what I was bringing to the table was the butchering and then everybody else would bring something else. That's, that was the goal of the show. So the one that was the wild crafter was the one who got ill. Is that right? The yes. And yep. he was out in what, like three days? Yep. He left on day three. Day three. And then I was thinking, okay, the two of them, they'll last a long time. And then it was like <laughs> seven days in or something. Yep. Is that right? Seven yeah. days. And then he it's left. On day, yeah, Zane left. Oh, and I was like, what is going on here? And I was like, she's got this. I know she's got it. <laughs> but I so, did not see that coming. <laughs> yeah. It blindsided me. And I mean, there's probably, and I don't know if we could talk about it all, but there's so much that's probably left out of there. Obviously, 28 days of uh, filming and different experiences and things that you experienced that you know, obviously it's an hour long show. You're not going to get to right. see all that. But so they had to leave out a lot. Yeah. Sure. I almost want to, hopefully they come out with like a extended cut behind the scenes. Right. Something, because <laughs> that would be amazing. I want to see more of what you did. I, so, so let's talk about, I mean, obviously you're eating the meat. What else right. were you eating besides that? Well, really the first like I said, the first seven days was all that I had without snow on the ground. And there was berries. There were berries that were, everything there grows so slowly that the plants are very low to the ground. I had rose bushes like I have here where I live, but instead of being, you know, two, three, four feet tall, they're only six inches tall and very low to the ground. So the berry bushes were the same. They were so low to the ground. And once the snows came and covered everything up, you couldn't really find them anymore. They were gone. But for the first week, I had berries. And so I would pick berries in between butchering and before I went to bed and whatnot, and we would eat those. But aside from those, rose hips, uh, which don't provide you with much. It's mostly just a little taste off the end of it. And some vitamin C. Um, but So would yeah. you, you wouldn't eat the whole rose hip, though, would you? you just eat the flesh? No, you can't. The, the whole... Rose hip is not edible, and, and the seeds have a fiber around them that's yeah. really irritating to your digestive system. I mean, so you, you can't could, eat the seeds. but it'd probably be pretty painful on the other end. It wouldn't benefit <laughs> you. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> you could eat it, but you wouldn't be benefiting. If you didn't have diverticulosis, you would after that for yeah. sure. <laughs> right. No doubt. Right. So I just used them to kind of sometimes flavor my, towards the end, I had only dried meat. And so I would pull the rose hip, the little tips off and um, put them onto pieces of my dried meat and eat them just so they had some flavor to them. But yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of nutrition coming from the rose hips, but it was primarily for after the first week, it was just pretty much a moose meat diet. I mean, were you eating any of the tips of like the different ever pine trees or anything that could give you any the only trees or... the only trees they really had up there were spruce oh man um and no i really didn't eat the i didn't eat the green uh, i've i do that here sometimes when i'm out hunting on the the young shoots of trees but these trees were a little bit different than what i'm used to chewing up there and yeah. i don't know i don't know it never really crossed my mind to chew them i could have for vitamin c but I never really felt sick up there. I felt pretty healthy. Um, 
never thought thought never crossed my mind like oh I need some vitamin C or I need something that I could get from these so I never bothered with the trees I just ate the meat so were you I eat a I eat a heavy protein diet as it is at home so it wasn't it wasn't exactly what I eat at home but it wasn't that much different than what I eat at home so at one point I mean you're pretty much a carnivore diet (laughs) not yeah yeah not by definitely by choice but necessity at that point huh yeah. Yep. I ate, I also ate the bone marrow, which has a lot of fat in it. That was really good. Um, and that, that helped me a lot. I would start to get real tired and run down and I'd crack open one of those bones and cook up that bone marrow for a couple of days and eat that. And it helped a lot. So how'd you do it? Did you uh, take the whole bone and roast it in a fire and then crack it open or what'd you do? No, I would just break the bone open with a rock and then kind of take uh, the end of a small stick and scrape the bone marrow out and then I actually cooked it on the shoulder blade over the fire and then I would dip my dried jerky into that grease and stuff and eat the little pieces that crackles that kind of cooked up it was really good nice (laughs) you know that's the thing is it's in the moment or in the experience sometimes the food tastes so much better and if you were to eat that at home you know you'd be like oh what is this Yeah, it's true. And and I've found that like, I only really ate out of necessity. I never was, I never was like, oh, I wish I had something to snack on. You know, you didn't have these. I had three meals a day. I made myself eat three times a day, even though I didn't feel that hungry necessarily. But when I did eat, it tasted really good to me because I was, you know, there wasn't any sugar in my diet. There wasn't any salt in my diet. So and your body gets used to it and it just tastes good. The, the natural flavor of the food is enough. So let's talk about mental preparation. What did you do to keep your sanity beforehand, knowing you're leaving, your babies are at home, you're going to be gone, not seeing them? What was that like? I mean, I know that's pretty tough. I sometimes travel for work and stuff, and it's hard just to be away a couple weeks for my kids so what was that that was the hardest part of the whole thing for me was leaving my kids because my main job is being a stay-at-home mom that's what I do and I love my job my kiddos are my life and me not being able to even talk to them not even over the phone not not even get an update on how they're doing for 30 days just seemed overwhelming and when I left, my son was having some struggles with swallowing. He was having some issues after a choking incident. And it it wasn't anything where I felt like it was life-threatening, but it was it was interrupting his diet and causing some causing some problems. And it was not able to be resolved before I went up there. So I had that in the back of my mind and I was worried about him and wondering how he was doing. And yeah. That I knew before I went up there that that was going to be the hardest part for me, and it definitely was 100% the hardest part. Um, I had a lot of downtime, a lot of thinking time. <laughs> There's a lot of hours of darkness up there, and when you don't have a light and you don't have any way of seeing outside of your campfire, you don't have much to do for all those hours. You can't sleep for 14 hours straight. Um, plus you have to keep your fire going. So you're up all night long and intermittently stoking your fire, keeping it going. So there was a lot of brain time, but surprisingly, I found it to be very, um, stress-free overall. My mind didn't have a lot of anxiety. I didn't have a lot of stress because aside from wondering how my kids were doing, which I had no control over at the time. So you kind of had to 
I kind of had to let that go in a way. Um, there wasn't a lot to worry about besides your basic things like keep my fire going, keep my fuel stocked up, keep my meat safe from predators, don't get hurt. Like there was just very basic human needs, drink water <laughs> that I had to think about, but I couldn't worry about these giant stresses that are going on in the rest of the world. I had no connection to that and I had no way of knowing what was happening. There was an impeachment process going on when I left. And I wondered one time while I was up there, I was like, oh, I wonder if we still have the same president right now. <laughs> but like you don't, the rest of the world is going on out there, but there's these places where all this craziness means nothing because they're unaffected by it. And I was in one of those places and it was one of the most peaceful things to be away from all of that chaos. So what was your what was your day-to-day -day like then? I mean, did you sit down and give yourself a little bit of reflection or go sit in a certain spot or just something that was kind of inspirational to you there and then go about your daily routine? Or, I mean, did you make yourself commit to a routine to keep your sanity? What would you do? When I headed up there, I intended to be very routine about what I did because I knew that that would be good for my sanity. But I did not realize exactly how everything was going to go while I was there. And when you get thrown into a production, which is what this was, you lose a lot of control over your time. <laughs> so I would get up in the morning and <clears throat> I would always drink water. That was one of the things that I had, I knew I had to keep up on and it was hard because the water was not close to where I was, my shelter was. And there was a large hill there that I had to go up and down and the bladder that I used to carry my water froze. So I couldn't use it anymore. And water was a high priority. So I had specific points in my day where I always stopped whatever I was doing and I went and I drank water and I knew I had to do that in order to stay hydrated and stay healthy. So that was one regular thing in my day. But aside from that, it was just a lot of, there was a lot of repetition so that you know, the camera could get what was happening. They were trying to tell my story. The camera people had to tell my story. And in order to tell my story, sometimes I'd have to repeat something that I did that they missed, you know, mm. or I'd have to say something. They'd need me to explain something that I did because, you know, it wouldn't make sense to somebody who wasn't there. Um, things like that, that you don't realize you're going to have to do until you get there. <laughs> I wanted to go out and explore and do a lot more things. I didn't have the energy to do that once I got there. I had the energy to accomplish my daily tasks and the things that I needed, but I didn't have extra energy to just go and explore like I normally would. So I tried to think through everything I would encounter up there. And for the most part, I was able to feel pretty prepared, but there were some things that I just had no idea that it was going to be that way. So I couldn't totally prepare for it. And it changed the way I went about my daily day-to-day -day things just because the nature of the, what it was. Was there ever a point where you thought maybe your emotions weren't going to stay in check or anything to where just a certain point where you were like doubtful of yourself that you were even going to make it? No, I, when I went up there in my mind, the only way I was leaving is if something happened at home that was an emergency and I had to go home for my kids or some, or my husband or something. Um, or if I got to the point where I was injured or sick and they had to pull me out and they forced me to leave, I was not leaving. It didn't matter to me if they recommended it. 
I wouldn't have been leaving. They'd have to forcibly pull me out of there. There was no way I was going to go home. <laughs> that was my mindset going in. And I was, there was no way it never crossed my mind. They asked me multiple times, what, you know, will you tap? And I was like, no, I didn't come up here to leave. Like there was a lot of work that went into coming up there. And there was a lot of preparation for my family, for me to be able to be gone for 30 days. There was a lot that went into me being able to leave for that period of time. And there was no way that I was going to go into all that and then just walk away. That was not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of times my mindset, especially if somebody tells me I can't do it or something like that. It totally, right. totally pushes me into the mindset to where now nothing's going to stop me. And Well, and and to be honest, I've been through some things in my life that were very mentally difficult. And I'm talking like, struggling for seven years 30 days is nothing (laughs) you can do almost anything for 30 days but a lot of people don't they've not struggled through something that difficult for long periods of time some people just haven't had to do that and it's a mental muscle and if it's not worked then you're gonna you're gonna struggle and you're gonna suffer but i've already done things mentally that i feel like were more difficult than what i had to do up there so that to me was not really a struggle well that's like right now with everything going on with this whole covid19 and the rush for toilet paper it boggles (laughs) my mind and i told my wife the other day i said how soft are people that they're worried about toilet paper all right i'd be more worried about my kids starving which i'm not too worried about that either no i would be more worried about (laughs) that or more worried about other people doing trying to do bad things to take what you have not if toilet paper <laughs> if we learn anything through this whole thing hopefully it's that the majority of our population is extremely soft and yes. it's due to how blessed we are we're very blessed people and that's a wonderful thing but we also need to challenge ourselves and we need to be able to withstand things like being without toilet paper without it being the end of the world <laughs> absolutely they're charmin soft yeah. is what they are <laughs> right yeah exactly yeah. no i mean that's why i hunt public land it's it's a challenge it faces new challenges every day and to be honest most of the time the challenges are people but um yeah yeah it's true. definitely why i do it um so moving forward from this point on what kind of skill sets are you wanting to work on or anything like that that's kind of inspired you from that show learning more foraging or anything like that? You know, I came away from that show feeling like, wow, I could do this. Like what, what is there that I, you know, limiting myself in thinking I can't do that, but I actually could because that was a new level for me when it came to physical and outdoor type of challenges. I was able to accomplish that. And I thought, gee, there's, there must be so many more things that I could do that I'm not doing right now. But going into this next year, this is kind of a, everything's up in the air right now, but I felt like my hunting season last year was, it was kind of, it was kind of stolen in a way, but for a good thing. Like the show took over my hunting season (laughs) and it was worth it for one hunting season. Um, to go and do that and have that experience. But next year, I'm just looking forward to a regular hunting season. I want to go out and chase elk and I want to go out and chase predators. And I want to, I want to go do what I love doing. I love being in the mountains. I love being in the outdoors. I love the chase, the hunt, 
all of that stuff. And I just want to fully immerse in it this year because I feel like I kind of missed it last year. <laughs> Definitely. So do you plan on coming back to Illinois again? You're going to try and get another. I'm going to try to. Yeah, I've I've gotten to come there two years and it's been fun. It's so different. It's so different from what I'm used to doing out here. And that's what I love about it. I like to see how other people do, how other people hunt and how they chase whitetails and how they, you know, go about everything's so interesting in the different parts of the country, how people do it. And I have a blast coming out there. It's great. It's a great time. It's me countryside. I always see something (laughs) new I'd never seen before. Yeah. So I've got a little bit of advice for you. You don't need to get new boots. All you need to do is bring your same boots but buy boot covers for those boots. I've heard people say that. That's so funny. Yeah. I don't have such a thing, but I bet I could find them. <laughs> Arctic, Arctic Shield makes a great pair. Um, they're not terribly expensive, um, and they work and good. And you just put them over your shoes. Yeah, so I recently, because I started doing the Out West thing and went on an elk hunt, you know, different things like that, that I have Western hunting gear, and I've actually applied all of my Western hunting gear to the way I hunt whitetails here in Illinois. I want to be highly mobile. I want, you know, high performance clothes because yes, I'm going to be going deeper, longer than most people as far as hiking and to different spots. I'm going to maybe be a little sweaty. I want it to wick. All the things that you want out of Western hunting gear. But Right, which add, is all I have. Right. So but, I bring it there. Right. So you <laughs> add you add in that puffy layer and the puffy pants that you can put on or in between or, you know, use your rain gear to block. All the things I've learned from Western hunting, I have now applied to my whitetail hunting, and it works great. The only caveat to that would be my hunting boots, which the Western hunting boots are uninsulated. And I normally actually last longer in those boots because my feet get hot. I have sweaty feet, but wearing good merino socks, I can do pretty good in those boots up until I get into like the teens and then my feet freeze. But so last year, normally it's not that cold during the end of October, early November, which was crazy this year. We had like, I don't, I don't know if it was actually part of a polar vortex, but it came rushing in right around the rut second week of November, first week of November, and it was just blistering cold, negative with the wind chill, like double digit negative. And I was like, this is crazy. My feet are freezing. My other boots, I mean, normally I just wear rubber boots, couldn't wear those. So I went and bought some of those boot cover, threw a hand warmer in there inside of that boot cover. Once I got up into my tree stand and I was so toasty, my feet never got cold, toes never got cold. And I had no idea that it was even negative outside. It was that's perfect. awesome. So I'm going to have to do that. Yeah. So look into that. You don't got to go getting a whole new pair of boots, some silly double insulated boots or anything like that. You can wear your same boots. giant boots. Yeah. Well, and I thought about that too. Like I hate climbing up in those tree stands and I definitely wouldn't want to do it with some giant snowshoe on my foot, you know? <laughs> no, absolutely. And that's the thing. Like one of the pairs of boots I had, my climber tree stand, you couldn't even get in the foot loops with a big right? insulated pair of boots. You couldn't even get it in to climb up the tree. So, yeah. Yeah. And I like, and especially like rubber boots, some of the rubber boots that that people wear, those are dangerous on, on a tree step trying to get in. So, yeah, no, I wear my Western hunting boots almost year round now. So that's that the way sense. to do it. Just get yourself some boot covers. <laughs> that's a simple fix that's a yes, simple fix is. i can do that and hand warmers <laughs> hot hands recommend them 
I do have those. I had those inside of my mittens on my feet. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, I saw I saw a couple of pictures of that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm going to keep these feet warm while I'm watching for these deer. <laughs> so what ended up happening? You never saw one or you never saw one that was uh big enough to take? What was there just wasn't anything that was a shooter. Yeah, I saw a few small bucks and lots of does, but no shooter bucks. And and I was out there with Rob Sharkey. He's an outfitter over there. And he he said that it was because their crops weren't able to be harvested before the season. And so there were just fields full of standing crops and that the deer weren't doing their usual patterns and such. So they were hanging out in the fields where all the food was. There was no reason for them to be moving through these areas where we had the tree stands and stuff stuff up so yeah that it made was, sense but it was, it, it was still fun it was a very interesting year as far as that went very strange if people did get it in they couldn't get it out some people didn't get it planted at all so hopefully right. this year yeah, is it was a normal a rough, year, year although it's already started out pretty strange so right as yeah, of right too. now yeah i don't even know if i can go and hunt my turkey tag oh really because illinois dnr so most of the Department of Natural Resources or Parks and Wildlife, whatever you want to call it or whatever your state labels it as, hasn't closed the parks. But here, any Illinois DNR, Department of Natural Resources owned site is closed. They closed them okay. as of like Tuesday or Wednesday. And so with that being closed, I mean, how do you close woods? I don't know. So I don't know if I can, I've got a tag for first turkey season. I don't even know if I'll be able to hunt that. Huh. Is there, so that's all the public land is all in that, inc included in that? Almost all of it. So we've got National Forest, which is way down south in the southern tip okay. of Illinois. And then we've got just one spot that's uh, National Forest that's uh, Tallgrass Prairie, which is not too far from my house. But the way Illinois not works really. is if it's public Perfect. land, it's site-specific. That you have to draw a tag for oh wow yeah that's hard yes it is so and here <laughs> i got i got the tick tag i wanted for the turkeys first season nobody else has tried calling them in or educated them i mean it was a perfect setup i already uh, went out and did some scouting and found a couple spots called in a gobbler to a little practice that was fun. and uh, now i don't even know if i'll get to do it so that's kind of crazy but Turkey hunting's like the mini version of elk hunting. It's cool. <laughs> it's neat. Yeah, it's neat. And actually, I've never, never hunted the spring like that. Um, okay. Yeah. So normally That's it's fun. like archery season, and I'll shoot one with a bow because I just see a string of them going by and shoot a bearded one, and you know that's how I do it. But <laughs> so I was like, yeah, this is awesome. It's gonna be my first be cool. public land spring turkey hunt. And, uh, I like spring turkey, but I'm usually out bear hunting, and so I, I don't get a whole lot of time put into the spring one. But in the fall, every once in a while, I'll go out and tag one. So when you bear hunt, is that like a spot and stalk, or is it more of like a predator call them in and see if one comes in? How do you go about it? I usually do a lot of glassing. I'm going to areas where I can see a long ways, try to glass and, and see if I can get in on them. A lot of times I can't, I'll find them so far away and try to get over there. But by the time you get there, it's the other end of the day and they're gone. Um, and I've also tried the calling technique, but not nearly as much. I'd like to try it more. I think it might work really well in the spring and I just haven't messed with it much. So it'd be kind of fun to try that a little bit more, see if it would work. I wonder if you could uh, sit and 
use a mouth diaphragm and call some turkeys in and then do some squeaks and call on a bear at the same time. <laughs> I've had ki- I've had coyotes come in for from turkey calling. <laughs> oh, I never yeah. thought of that. Yeah. <clears throat> They've come in looking for that bird before, but yeah, I don't know. I've for the the bear's main food source in the spring when they first come out are the elk calves. So I usually go with some sort of a a calf in distress type of a call because they're real keen on those or a rabbit in distress, but I think they'd probably eat anything. They're pretty hungry when they come out in the spring. Yeah. So it's been a great conversation and it's probably time we should be wrapping this up. But before we go, uh, you want to tell the listeners where they can find you and follow you and all those things? Sure. Basically, if you just search Hunt Fiber, I am on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, Twitter's pretty fun. I like that one. And then my website is huntfiber.com. And I'm on LinkedIn under Lindsay Persico. All right, Lindsay, it's been fun. Good talking to you. And uh, keep in touch. Maybe if you come over to Illinois again this year, we can uh, meet up and do another podcast. Oh, that would be fun. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yep, thank you. Have a good day. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenged.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. Mondays, head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that belly. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.